heard Pelt. That was awesome, and that was called Shackleton Incinerator Wheel. Shackleton colon Incinerator Wheel. Swans before that with an excerpt of Kill the Child, 62-minute live recording from Eastern Europe or something. We heard Husker Du with the song Diane. We heard the Psychedelic Furs with Birdland, which is a B-side track. Anyway, Living Writers coming at you seconds from now. This has been Freeform with Eleanor on WCBN FM. Listen next week at 3 o'clock every Wednesday. Keep it tuned. I'm so pleased to have via phone Robert Pinsky. Um, welcome, Robert. A pleasure to be talking to you, T. And Robert, thanks so much for for doing this. You're you're going to be um, uh, next week. Uh, you'll be coming to well, actually, let's see. Today is September 15th, 2011, and next week you'll be arriving uh, for the Miloš celebration, um, and. We're just, I just am so glad that you'll be back in town, Robert. I'm very glad. It's a great reason. And uh, as I've said to you before, I truly do love Ann Arbor and uh, the U of M. I have family connections to it. And uh, for a lot of reasons, I just love the town and I love the place. How many times have you been here, uh, Robert? Um, somewhere between 1,572 and 1,593, but I've <laughs> lost track. <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> 
Lotsa. Very One answer would be Lotsa. Lotsa. <laughs> Very close to your heart, this place. Well, and you are close to ours. I'll, I'll speak on behalf of the whole u- university here. Um, you know, they love when I do that. Um, but Robert, before we go any further... Um, I've got a copy of your selected poems um, out, mm-hmm. th- out this year with F- FSG Books. Um, and I'll just read the short bio on the back, and then we'll go from there. Okay. okay. Robert Refresh Pin- my memory. Okay. <laughs> Robert Pinsky teaches in the F- MFA program at Boston University and is the poetry editor of Slate. In addition to his books of poetry, and these are numerous, and The Inferno of Dante, he has written prose works, including The Life of David and The Sounds of Poetry. So, wow, we've got a lot to fill in there, huh? Okay, that should give us something to talk about. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, one of the most notable ones being, probably, I guess, when, when you talk with people, is the, um, the Poet Laureate uh, gig. Is this, is this the first thing? That often comes up? Does it? it depends upon how passionate the person is about poetry. Um, if you're deeply interested in poetry, as with anything else, the titles and the awards don't mean as much to you. Uh, I'm sure that's true of um, you know, the world of film, the world of medicine, anything. If you only know a little bit about it, the titles and the prizes are useful. Uh, if you're a devotee, um, if you're really interested in poetry, you want to talk about poems. Which is why you don't choose to have a whole list of um, whatever, everything, all your prizes under your, uh, in your bio? I was not, uh, I was not the kind of uh, teenager who does well in high school or wins prizes. And um, I developed, my father was not financially successful. My family uh, probably had some skepticism about prizes and titles. Right. And I was forced to have skepticism about it for self-respect because I was very far from an A student. So I, <laughs> I am not, uh, uh, I, I, my natural tendency is not to take titles seriously. On the other hand, this title let me do one of the best things I ever did, which is the Favorite Poem Project. Yes. And, uh, those videos at favoritepoem.org to me are... That's something serious. Uh, the videos are, are important to me, and the anthologies based on the project are important to me. So I may have a grain of salt about the title, but that has to be amended by saying the title did let me do something that I am proud of. Yes, and and that's a project like it, it birthed three anthologies eventually, right? Robert? Yes, yes and, that's right. And I visited... They were all published by Norton, and the reason there were three anthologies is that Norton found, somewhat to their surprise, I think, that um, they sold rather well. People wanted those anthologies. And and how is it? Is I visited the website today, but um, I, I wanted to ask, is this an ongoing project where you are still filming people? And... We can't. We didn't. Uh, I turned out to be not so hot at raising money. Uh, we were going to do 100 videos, and uh, we did 50 thanks to the Clinton administration millennial celebration. And uh, I assumed that the next 50 would be financed by some foundation, but I learned foundations don't like things that are already good. So our commission from the White House was a portrait of the United States of America in the year 2000. And I think in many ways we did that big variety of readers in age, ethnicity, kind of expect, uh, education. 
lot in uh, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., Miami, Washington, Baltimore, uh, Very Connecticut, Massachusetts. Uh, we knew who the people were. We would film in the middle of the country, and uh, we never got to do that. Um, hmm. I can remember getting a letter from one foundation saying, uh, this is a very wonderful project, but uh, we're interested in projects that make poetry more popular. This seems more archival. Really? And, that is yeah, so strange. The name, of, the name of that foundation probably should go unmentioned. Well, at, at your fact, di- in fact, it <laughs> was the Lannan Family Foundation. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, uh, you're probably getting a glimpse into why I didn't get A's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, fight the, the power. The, the, uh, Resistance. The project, the project was very good, and I, as I say, I'm proud of it. There was some frustration that we didn't do the middle of the country. On the other hand, every summer, the Favorite Poem Project has... Uh, uh, an institute for K through 12 educators uh, here in Boston, and um, we use those videos and the anthologies to encourage a kind of teaching of poetry that uh, is based on the experience of the poem. Yeah, and having it be poem. and having it be alive, like it's 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 alive to someone and present in this moment instead of being something that's either of the academy or dusty or or yeah yeah. yeah. I sometimes say that there are two quite respectful, respectable, quite excellent realms that people think are the entire culture. And that's the academic world and the show business world. And it sometimes seems that people think that some subculture, uh, what is on the curriculum and uh, what's uh, on what used to be called TV Guide. Now is your channel lineup. And in fact, I think the project, which just involves People saying aloud poems they love one at a time demonstrates that culture is larger. It includes both of those things, but it's, uh, a culture is something a little bit more than that as well. Yes, and and you've you've um, in during I don't know like the last. Oof. Well, I mean, you, you went to Rutgers. You were the first person in your family to go to college. And, yes. and so you're um, self-deprecating in that you, you make jokes and say, oh, you can see why I didn't get A's. But then you also went to, to Stanford for um, a master's and a Ph.D. in philosophy and then spent time there as a Stegner fellow. People um, often ask me about that degree in philosophy, T. Yeah. And, uh, Sometimes I try to enlarge on it and talk about my studies in philosophy, and other times I confess to them that uh, although I did have a Stegner Fellowship and was at Stanford, the degree in philosophy is a misunderstanding produced by Wikipedia, I think, or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't have the PhD in philosophy. <laughs> it was in English. <laughs> and, really? Uh, I, I'm quite accustomed to being introduced to someone who has a PhD in uh, philosophy, and uh, as I say, when I'm asked about it, I have to decide to what extent I'm going to uh, bullshit or confess <laughs> or, or whatever. Uh, it, I, you know, I wish I did. <laughs> but you know what? I think. Is, do you think it's because? Um, well, you studied with Ivor. Say it. Tell Ivor me if Winters. I, Ivor yes, Winters. I did have a PhD, which is called the Doctor of Philosophy degree, uh, a PhD in English, and maybe it comes. I don't know. I I don't know where it comes from, but I know it must be something on the web. Yes, and um, well, hopefully someone. You're not the first person. Uh, uh, you're not the first person to uh, credit me 
with that uh, that degree and um, and I, I might don't. not be the last unless someone listening can go in there and change it now right it's now, in English they folks maybe award me one <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I I'm all in favor of that I'm I am on your side. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, Robert, before we um, before we take a short break, um, I wanted to say that I was just looking earlier today also at um, at at your at your hometown, Long Branch, New yes. Jersey. Um, I was curious because um, my my family used to also be in um, the Oranges and at Seagirt, and so I oh, saw. Oh yeah, Seagirt <laughs> is a beautiful place, not that far from Long Branch. It's at about thirty minutes. Yeah, so I think Secret may be in Ocean County, Long Branch is in Monmouth County, but maybe it is in Monmouth County. It's, anyway, I know Secret well. And and Long Branch and and so I could then, I think, imagine Long Branch a little bit um, more as well. And that that your that place holds um, is powerful to you in in like the the creation of your imagination and your foundation and sort of some of your. Um, I don't know. It's... I'm a small town person and uh, a resort town person, which is different. And you know, my mother and father met at Long Branch High School. My father and I had the same homeroom teacher. <laughs> uh, my brother and sister, my aunts and uncles, and my cousins all went to Long Branch High. Uh, my dad uh, uh, had an optical shop in the town. His father had a very well-known bar. And uh, before he had the bar in the 20s, he was a bootlegger. <laughs> and uh, we, so the family, in, in the way of American families and American towns, having been in the town for three generations, uh, we felt like we really belonged there. We we're old timers in the town. And uh, resort towns are interesting. And uh, Long Ranch is a very old, historic one. It goes back to the 19th century. There's a beautiful Winslow Homer here in. Uh, Boston Museum of Fine Arts in Boston called Long Branch, New Jersey. Oh. And Homer covered Long Branch for Harper's Magazine. He did uh, engravings for the magazine. And uh, Grant and Garfield came here. Uh, Lincoln was here. Um, it, has a, it has an old history. And I like how you said in in some uh, when you were uh, speaking uh, about it with let's see with um, who was it I I can't find the person's name right now but um, Jersey the most American state where you said you talked of its beauty and also its um, uh, parts of its disintegration. Yeah, the town is largely uh, it's changed quite a lot. The uh, the beautiful honky tonk boardwalk is burned down. They sold off the merry-go-round. Oh. Uh, but, you know, like the country, it keeps tearing itself down and building itself up again. And uh, that remark that New Jersey is in many ways the most American state has to do with, you know, the variety of terrain. It is a garden state. It's also very urban. Um, the ethnic range of New Jersey, the fact that you can, I think it has more deer than any other state. <laughs> uh, uh, John McPhee has written about New Jersey very well. And, well, and and as have you, um, you're too modest to say, in the thousand, um, uh, the, the recent book, Robert, of yours, Oh yeah, Thousands, thousands of, Broad of Broad Ways, Ways yes. uh, in which uh, those who are curious can see family photos as well as, uh, I mean, in a way it's a book of film and literary criticism, but you also see a picture of my uh, 
grandfather, the bootlegger with his dukes up, looking like he's ready to, to fight somebody. And uh, my dad uh, with his, um, his basketball team, the Jewish Aces. Uh, and that's along with other more, you know, Twain and uh, Alfred Hitchcock and so forth. Right. <laughs> and you that was a fun book. I, it, was, it was a lot of fun to do that book, uh, partly because it does have a dash of memoir along with talking about uh, American small towns in novels and in movies. Yes. Robert, you're you're never still. Like the things that you're making uh, and working from image and and blending the the genres. Um yeah, hats off. And and we'll <laughs> we'll we'll take a short break and then we'll be right back, okay? okay? And we'll talk more today on the program Robert Pinsky um speaking to us from Boston. Um his latest selected poems. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, um, welcome. And it's it's your lucky day because today on Living Writers, I'm speaking with Robert Pinsky. Um, Robert is speaking to us from his home in Boston. Is that right, Robert? Am I getting that right? Well, technically speaking, in Cambridge, which is across the river from Boston, but close enough, T. Okay. No, let's get it right. <laughs> um, and and actually, we're we're excited um, because you're going to be coming to Ann Arbor. Um, this is a tape show from September 15th, um, but you'll be here for the annual Copernicus Lecture in the Zell Visiting Writers Series, Meloche Made in America. This will be happening um, September 22nd. Uh, there'll be, uh, let's see, many wonderful things happening. Um, there'll be a film, uh, a public reception, and most importantly, the symposium that features you, right, Robert? Robert Pinsky, uh, Robert Haas, and Lillian Valle. Uh, Valley. Oh, Valley? Yeah, Lillian Valley. Lillian Valley? Valley. Valley. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to seeing Bob. I don't know Lillian as well, but I'm looking forward to the occasion very much. Yes, and um, I'm I'm glad I'm glad uh, to hear that, Robert. And you, you know, you know Bob Hass, who's also a friend friend of the show here as well. Um, you know him from your time at Berkeley 
And no, was... I know him from long before that. Oh, really? I knew that rascal when we were <laughs> studying philosophy together at Stanford University. <laughs> we met, we were, we were amongst the very few uh, married graduate students at Stanford, and I met Bob in, I guess it was 1963 or so. So, no, I've known him since we were puppies. Wow. And so that's back. And, um, and when you, was that also, what, who else was in that, st- 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 when you were James studying McMichael, there? McMichael, there were a lot of wonderful poets. John Peck and James McMichael were uh, my classmates, I believe, one may have been a year ahead of me. Anyway, it was a wonderful time to be there. There was a lot going on in fiction. We didn't really know the Ken Kesey crowd, the McClanahan crowd very well. I did once play, uh, uh, tennis with Bob Stone, unlikely though that may seem. But it was, a, it, was a, it was an exciting time at Stanford. It was right before and sort of slightly at the beginning of the political upheavals. And so, because, I left by around 1967, I think I left. And is that when you went to Wellesley? Um, I did one year teaching at the University of Chicago. Right. Wonderful students there. Uh-huh. And yeah, and then I taught at Wellesley for another nine or ten years before Bob and I picked up the friendship again uh, when I came to Berkeley. And that was in 79? That sounds right. 79. And, and is, that, is that when you and Bob met Miloš? Yes, yes. Could you tell um, us a little bit about that time? Well, um, the, uh, the anecdote of, of that coming together was um, I had a lot of, uh, I, I really revered the poems in uh, a book. We all had a common publisher at the time. We were all published by Echo Press. And um, there was a book called Bells in Winter, uh, which I believe Lillian was the translator, uh, that I had read not long before I went to Berkeley. And I, I was enchanted by it. It was wonderful. And the great prose book, um, uh, later Native Realm, but there was the captive mind. And uh, Bob arranged with uh, Cheswav's uh, uh, helper that we get together and maybe Bob and I, based on uh, uh, summaries, trots of the Polish, we would try to help with uh, English versions. And um, we kept uh, making arrangements to meet, and one time I couldn't make it, another time Bob couldn't make it. And in that period, uh, I think it was one of my daughters came to me and said, look, that guy you know just won the Nobel Prize. There it was in the paper. And uh, my first thought, or one of my first thoughts was, oh, hell. <laughs> now he's going to think he's only good enough for us to meet with him because he won this prize. Totally. <laughs> because we, we, were, we were repeatedly canceling these meetings. And in fact, because the Nobel involves so much... Uh, Fufferaw and uh, you know travels and things. It did take uh, probably a few weeks uh, before it was possible, and before we got up our nerve to say, uh, "Do you still want to meet and get together?" And um, then we did, and uh, it was uh, for a couple of years. It was a true collaboration. Uh, and not only Bob and Cheswav, but Renata Gorczynski, who was working for Cheswav at the time, provided some of the uh, some of the trots, and we did meet in groups. And uh, it was sort of like Tin Pan Alley, and you couldn't always say who wrote what. Uh, <laughs> and that was a period that ended. I went back east, and uh, Bob became the main collaborator. Uh, but it was... Uh, it was a good 
study in poetry to work on those translations. How so? How, can you, how so, Robert? Well, writing is essentially a solitary practice. Um, but when you're thinking aloud and trying to make uh, a successful English version, and here we have not only a living writer, but a writer whose English is very good and who has done translation himself, um, you think aloud. And for me, it was learning how would Bob approach it and uh, testing out how I, how I would approach it on Bob and on Cheswaf. So um, you got a vision into other minds and the way other minds did this same, same solitary quite demanding uh, you know poetry is it's a strange thing you're, you're using intuition uh, it's physical you're just trying to see which sounds seem good in your mouth and your ear and it's also quite reflective and intellectual and you have to study it and everybody has their own characteristic characteristic ways of doing such things and uh, it was wonderfully instructive to have people of that caliber thinking aloud with you. And so you were in, so is, and then was the, the product of this then, this work together, was it the separate notebooks? Was that? The separate notebooks was the great first thing that we did uh, come up with. And um, it does represent Cheswav's attempt to create something that would, um, would combine the, attention of prose, um, the attention of poetry, reverie, analysis. Uh, it was like a separate notebook that would contain many approaches to the material, which was mostly material of uh, calamity, history, exile, um, spirituality, and uh, all those things were put together uh, put together in these multi-part and sometimes multi-genre, that is, prose mixed with verse uh, works. So were they, Robert, were they then, so literally, were they um, a, like different, separate, um, literally separate notebooks, like maybe I a few on the table, and then, no? no? no. Oh. Uh, it was, uh, it was to suggest that along with the part of the mind that makes lyric poetry, there's another part of the mind that is uh, restlessly thinking in other ways and in the way of lyric poetry. And uh, that was the project of that book in Polish, and uh, it, that was what we tried to, uh, we tried to approximate in, uh, in English. And, you know, it was a, it was a circulating process. Uh, one would come up with uh, uh, an English version of a poem. Uh, I always say Bob and I should not be called translators. We should be called consultants in English idiom and rhythm. <laughs> and we would come up with what we came up with and then present it to Cheswav. And uh, quite frequently he would say, no, no, this is... Uh, too informal, or this is not what I meant, uh, at least one, you know, sometimes there'd be uh, what's called a howler, a really big mistake. Uh, there's something about uh, a plane, the black glossy surface of a plane. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and uh, for most uh, uh, contemporary Americans, the black soft uh, glossy surface of a plane uh, suggests a carpenter's tool, you know, that heavy black metal. Mm. Well, it turns out that in the uh, 20s in Poland, a lot of airplanes were black. Oh, so literally so he In that case, we just had it, in a word, wrong. Huh. And 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 so when you so and what's so interesting to me is when the, to hear that um, Milos also was had such a command of the English language, which would make sense that since he was also he was a, a professor, teacher, a and, very and, successful teacher at Berkeley for uh, uh, decades. And but it was important to him to not just to to get these fine nuances in, and maybe it was important to build the friendship with you and Bob as well. The second thing is nice to think, and I think there's some truth in it, but Cheslav had always worked with someone in English poetry, as I would if I were being translated into Korean or Polish or something. A poet respects the parts of a poem that are not uh, as as though one were translating um, a legal document, uh, a a contract. Uh, A big part of the meaning is the associations, and the sounds, and uh, the sounds of a language, almost universally, there are there. The sounds of a language have to be absorbed in the cradle to write poetry. Mm. That's almost universal. We have lots of examples like Joseph Conrad and uh, Vladimir Nabokov, who write wonderful fiction, beautiful fiction, and perfectly good sentences uh, in a language that they. I think in both cases, got from their governesses when they were children. Poetry, I think Charlie Simic is the only example I know of where you can write poetry in something that was not literally your mother tongue, not literally the language your mother spoke to you Mm -hmm. before you could speak. And a respect for that deeply um, bodily, intuitive, associative, and musical quality in poetry, uh, that meant that Cheslav, not to be nice, but on behalf of his work, would want to have poets help him create the best possible English approximation of his poems. That That makes complete sense. So the friendship part of it I like thinking, and I, in fact, yeah, without uh, without exaggerating or being coy about it, I think Cheslav liked having two young Americans who, who could be his friend and he could work with. But uh, that's secondary in importance to the work, uh, yeah, but itself. I think so. Well, you can tell in the in the piece that. Um that you wrote that I actually found on the, the, the Poetry Foundation's website, No Tiara, No Crown, um, you can tell the closeness, the intimacy that the two, I, I, I mean, that seems apparent. And you, um, you also saw him a week or so before his death. You, were, you saw I him in Krakow. Be, I happen to be in uh, Krakow, where Czesław lived the last part of his life. And uh, I did see him in the hospital not long before he died. And, and you describe, even in that moment, like this, his humor and his, his laugh uh, being there. Um, yes. The, yes. He liked laughing very much. And uh, 
he was very good at finding things to laugh at. And uh, I think we were very different people in many ways. Um, Cheslov and I, he, uh, to just begin with the most external things, he was a Catholic. He had uh, a lot of friends who wound up in concentration camps. He had lived in an occupied country. Uh, we were not only different ages, but from different ages. And uh, one of the things we did share was uh, we were both attracted to laughter. Yes, yes. And I love how you describe it. It's, it's um, it, your, your lead line is, Meloche expressed much about himself with his laugh, a rhythmic booming of pleasure and irony. Um, to my ear, the laugh contained a note of self-mockery and a note of defiance. Um, mm. I mean, that's, uh, yes, you've captured it so well there. Uh, Robert. You know, I suddenly remember an Ann Arbor incident, nothing to do with Cheswaff. Yes. Uh, Rudolf Arnheim, the great uh, writer about art, uh, lived in Ann Arbor and spent the last part of his life in Ann Arbor. And uh, I remember Rudy Arnheim, whom I visited, he liked talking to me about Dante. He liked my Dante translation. Yes. He showed me on the wall... Uh, an illustration that his friend Lionel Feininger had done him. Feininger had uh, worked with Rudy Arnheim on the first magazine that Hitler banned after he came into office. Wow. And uh, Rudy also laughed, and I had this thought of how long Hitler had been dead and that Rudy and his wife were still having a very good time in Ann Arbor. (laughs) And uh, Cheslov's laughter had that quality in it, too. How many, many, many sons of bitches had died. Uh, and yeah. he was still uh, uh, having a glass of wine and chuckling in Berkeley. Yeah, kicking it in California. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Robert, we're going to take a very short break, and we'll be right back to talk more. Today on Living Writers, Robert Pinsky. We'll be back. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have via phone Robert Pinsky. Um, Robert, thanks so much for for being here on Living Writers. Uh, it's a pleasure gacking with you, T. Uh-huh. Well, always, it's, I, yes, it's always... It's, it's always fun to talk with you, Robert, and to hear anything that you're saying, any of your, your, your takes on, on, on poetry. Um, now I feel like I'm just rid- ridiculously um, going on here. But 
back back to the um the you, when we left off um you were talking about some of the differences uh between the two of you although that laughter was something you shared definitely and you mentioned that um Miloš was coming he was a catholic um and that i was wondering if you would um sort of take us to that story uh that where he he was talking about the Pope with you after his return from Italy, um, one of the times you met and were were talking about poems together. Yeah, fame is a peculiar thing, you know. Czesław Miłosz gave a reading at Berkeley, where he had taught for I guess twenty or twenty five years. Uh, a year or so before he won the Nobel Prize, uh, he gave a reading with his publisher, the poet Daniel Halpern. The reading was attended by seven or eight people, and it's likely that most of them there were there to hear Daniel Halpern. <laughs> From the press, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he edited the uh, then popular magazine, literary magazine, well-known magazine, Antaeus, and he edited uh, the Echo Press. Anyway, there was a handful of people at that poetry reading. And then about a year later, Czesław won the Nobel Prize, and his name was in the paper, and um, they couldn't fit the audience into the big auditorium in Wheeler Hall. People were out on the steps listening to it with a, with a speaker system. And uh, I suppose a somewhat skeptical question might be, did Czesław really get that much better as a poet in just a year? <laughs> Yeah, it's sprinkled with, with magic dust. <laughs> yeah, and as part of that sort of absurd, though wonderful uh, attention, he started traveling quite a lot. Uh, I didn't live far from him. He, he and Bob Hass and I all lived in the same general North Berkeley area. And I came home from being out one time, and uh, my teenage daughter was at the door, and turns out she had admitted Cheswav to the house. When I got there, she was sitting on the sofa chatting with him, and uh, I thought he was out of the country. And we greeted one another, and I said hello, and he said, um, without much delay, I have no poem I'd like to show you. And he had with him, he had prepared, he had typed out, it was the era of the typewriter, he had typed out um, this uh, poem, as I remember, it was a poem. I can't remember which poem it was. I remember that it was in sections. There's more than one section. And I was sort of flustered. I'd just come home, and here was my much senior guest. And uh, I sort of read it on the spot sitting next to him on, on the couch as best I could. And he said, what do you think of this poem? I said, well, this is a really interesting part here. I'm not getting this here. I haven't. I have to think about it more. I, I'm not... I'm not sure yet. And he said, hmm, well, the Pope liked this poem very much. <laughs> and, he pulled uh, out the Pope card. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a, sort of the best example I'd ever seen of uh, uh, argument by authority. <laughs> exactly. What's wrong and with you? I, I just sort of stammered and mumbled and said, oh, I, you know, he, 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 he writes poetry, doesn't he? He's the Pope did write plays and, 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 and pumped up. Particular Polish Pope did. Pope John of course, Paul. they were friends, and Czesław had taken to going on uh, retreats. So Czesław, far from, uh, I don't know if they used the expression, but as a Jew, I'll say, Czesław was far from an Orthodox Catholic, but he was Polish. 
on a retreat with the Pope. And uh, <laughs> when I said I wasn't sure how much I liked the poem, he, he immediately uh, pointed out that the Pope thought it was terrific. <laughs> and so there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that there. was a test I had never brought to my own taste in poetry before. <laughs> right, exactly. Who are your critics, Robert? <laughs> or your admirers for the <laughs> Who can... Only I think a... I've written poems I sometimes think God didn't like. <laughs> there are higher authorities, but... Yeah. Well, Different subject. <laughs> well, maybe that will be part two of our conversation for another day. The, the spiritual matters and how to dodge lightning with Robert Pinsky. <laughs> um, well, Robert, is there? Did you manage to find on the bookshelf the the separate notebooks? Is there? Is there? This a... is what uh, you, you get an insight into my life. Good. Uh, I did that book with Cheswav and Bob. It's a book I treasure very much. I'm sure that somewhere in this house there has to be a copy of the separate notebooks. And I, a minute ago, when we weren't on the air, I assured you that I was quite positive <laughs> that I would uh, I would find that copy. In fact, somewhere there's a copy that uh, Cheswav and Bob and I all signed. Oh. Um, and uh, the answer, this is a rather long answer to your question, that I find a copy of the separate notebooks, and the short and effective and efficient and somewhat lamentable answer is no. No. Nah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, if you... Well, let me put it this way. Nope. <laughs> a man of the language, the sound of... This, the sound of language, always always. Here's Bells in Winter, signed by Cheswag Miwosh. Because uh, now I'm looking at the sort of valuable books, but uh, no, I don't see it here. Sorry. No. Well, if you were here, I could just hand you our library's copy of it. Much, mu- it looks like much loved copy of it, um, which I will it's return. It's always nice when you get a book from the library, and uh, I guess in the age of computers, people won't recognize that. But when I was a kid, um, you could look at the card in the library book and see mm-hmm. the names of all the people who had taken it out before you. Yes. Uh, that's a casualty of um, the mainly good thing of the computer, but it's kind of a, Nicholas, a Nicholson Baker point that um, you don't see that list of who else has uh, treasured this book before. Well, I'm glad you have a, co- a copy of the separate notebooks, and uh, I look forward to finding my own, and if not, to uh, paying a fortune for it on Amazon. No, seriously, Robert. Seriously, that's that's no joke. <laughs> yeah, um. or or begging, begging. Daniel Halpern to give me one. I'm hoping I find it somewhere, but uh, I'm sad to say I don't see it here. Well, well, Robert, let's hop to let's hop to another book that um, uh-huh. I hope you have a copy of your selected poems. Uh, uh, happens, I do. Okay, I love how this book looks too. Just its presence and its um, austerity, in a way. It's austere and bold, and I love that it reminds me of. Uh, some of the first books that I came to love when I was in college, it, the black and white of it reminds me of the old New Directions books. Yes. So Ezra Pound's ABC of Reading and William Carlos Williams' is in The American Grain, uh, I associate with that black. I think they did a great, uh, uh, very bold uh, design of the selected poems. Yes, and how um, and the letters seem to, even though they're they're blocks and very clear, um, they're also sort of bleeding into each other somehow. Yeah, squeeze together it makes the negative spaces very jazzy in between them. Perfect, right? And and yes. we should say that you also picked all the musical selections for the the program today. These were Robert Pinsky picks. 
Yeah, we just heard Professor Longhair, <laughs> which um, I like because he and I have the same title. Yes. <laughs> and what what about some of the others, Robert? Why did you why did you pick those numbers? Those um, uh, very well, various. The clarinet quintet. The, the high, uh, uh, I just love that that classical piece. And then, to me, there's something sort of classical about Illinois Jaquette, the great uh, Texas tenor player. Uh, there's that one track, the only one I know of, I don't know very much about why and how he did it, but he plays um, a monk's uh, tune, he plays Round Midnight on the bassoon. Oh, yes. And it's very moving, it becomes increasingly uh, rhythmical, and uh, it has this uh, heavy dancing to it. It's like when you see Oliver Hardy dance and you realize he's actually a very graceful, rather good dancer. Mm. Uh, or it's like the dying speech of Falstaff or something. And uh, uh, it's a great jazz tune, and you don't expect it to be played on the bassoon. You don't expect it to be played by Illinois Jaquette. And uh, if you listen to the whole track, uh, the rhythm section encourages it more and more, and it actually swings while remaining kind of uh, mournful. Yes, and and uh, while you were saying that too, Robert, it reminds me of like Jimmy Cagney. Like he was a dancer, even though he was known for being sort of the heavy of he things. He was a, a unique dancer. Um, he would put his ass sort of in the air behind him and just move in a way. He was very much a self-taught dancer, and uh, it's kind of magical. Yeah. Have you seen Yankee Doodle Dandy recently? Uh, you know, I watched quite a lot of it uh, uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, he is kind of sublime in that movie, movie about show business. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, and the, and the um, and the musicality. I mean, we, we're we're talking about it now, and it feels like it's been always um, part of. I don't know. To say mission makes it seem more contained than I think it could ever be. But in in your work, I feel like your attention to the musicality um, of of the poems is is always foremost in in some way. Um, it certainly is foremost for me. It's become literal with me in the last few years. I've been doing rather a lot of uh, reading my poems with jazz musicians. And I've worked with some great musicians. I did three gigs in uh, L.A. not long ago. It's uh, the wonderful uh, trumpet player Bobby Bradford and his... Uh, uh, what does he call them? Uh, Bobby Bradford and his... Uh, Motet, <laughs> M-O-apostrophe-tet, <laughs> and uh, with a terrific piano player, Mark Seals, in Seattle, and I, I, I play quite a lot with, uh, I say play, I read my poems with uh, rock alum Bob Moses here in Boston and uh, the saxophone player, Stan Strickland, and uh, making explicit that connection between uh, poetry and music is quite important for me. Uh, you know, those modernists that I love, that people I associate with those New Directions books, um, for them, free verse, the important thing about free verse was that it would have all the intensity of sound, as if you were writing in rhyme and meter. And uh, you can hear that in Williams. You can certainly hear it in Pound. And I think in a way nowadays, all across the spectrum, the formalists, the experimentalists, everybody, it's almost like a little visual convention to have it ragged right. And the poets I love, living and contemporary and dead, uh, it's no joke, it's musical. 
you know, uh, the classical poets, the Greek and Latin poets, wasn't visual at all. They ran the, there were no lines visually. Their lines were expected to be so firm as sound that the poems were printed with no spaces between the words. Oh. You could hear, you could hear the rhythms. If you look at a scroll, a scroll of uh, Horace, some people think the greatest lyric poet ever, there's, the lines aren't visual. They just, uh, they just snake along, saves, saves uh, uh, vellum or parchment, whatever they used. <laughs> what well, I, and that's all just a little uh, uh, sermon, slightly tongue-in-cheek sermon, uh, to say that um, for me, the sound is everything. It, it certainly is first thing. Yes, and we will be back for a little more sermonizing. Okay, Robert, we'll take a short break, a short, short one. Um, You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Robert Pinsky is here. Uh, When we come back, uh, maybe we'll hear, I would love to hear, uh, a poem from your selected poems. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Robert Pinsky joins us, joins us from Cambridge. Um, Robert, in the last, uh, uh, before the break, we were talking about musicality, and I wondered, would you mind reading Gulf Music? Would that be one of the ones that you've been reading recently with the musicians? Well, you're the radio person, but uh, to me, that one is kind of long. Um what about oh. the first poem in the book? Yeah, uh, yes. Which is one I've read with musicians, and uh, it feels to me like it would fit. Uh, it would fit on radio better. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, fewer pe- fewer people uh, tuning in sports talk or uh, going to sleep. <laughs> the poem is called "Rhyme." Rhyme. Air, an instrument of the tongue. The tongue, an instrument of the body. The body, an instrument of spirit, the spirit, a being of the air. A bird, the medium of its song. A song, a world, a containment, like a hotel room, ready for us guests who inherit our compartment of time there. In the Cornell box, among ephemera as its element, the preserved bird, a study in spontaneous elegy, the parrot. Art, mortal, in its cornered sphere. The room, a stanza, rung in a laddered filament, clambered by all us unsteady, chambered voices that share it, each one reciting, I, too, was here. I, too, was here, in a room, a rhyme, a song, in the box, in books, each element, an instrument, the body still straining to parrot the spirit of being of the air. Thank you, Robert. That's, it feels like a, a manifesto of music and poetry. Uh, I suppose it is. I chose to put it first in the uh, book. You know, a very favorable review of the previous book this poem was in it was very laudatory. It said it's so much like Pinsky to write a poem called rhyme it doesn't rhyme <laughs> yes and uh it's quite wrong it does rhyme 
Oh, what do you? Well, but not the end rhyme. The the third doesn't rhyme like rap music. Right. The stanzas are tongue meant body spirit air song meant ready inherits air among elements study parrots fear. So the periodicity of the rhymes is a bit longer, and I hope kind of subliminal. Yes. Well, and also. well, that's the that's the power of of that layering of the sound, rather than something that's uh, too sing sing songy or uh, obvious. Well, couplets can be great too, but uh, I like the idea of making a poem which rhyme. The lines are pretty short, so they they come at a fairly frequent pace. But each stanza goes through the same sequence of uh, rhymes. Uh, anyway, uh, that's. That's why that poem is called Rhyme. And is that actually the way the periodic, odis, ah, I'm periodicity? Thank you. It's a mouthful. It's six <laughs> syllables. Six syllables, T. And uh, uh, you probably didn't study philosophy, so you can't say six syllable <laughs> words. Exactly. Although I do, I try to do a little bit on the side when I can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when I looked at this, actually, I was almost seeing. I was. I. I. I couldn't. Um, I, I was trying to see if you were working in like a formal structure because I noticed um, the parrot and like the returns of different uh, of the sounds. And so I was wondering at first, like, is it some sort of secret villanelle or something? like? Yeah, I don't do that. I've never written a sonnet or a villanelle or a sestina. I don't like ready-made forms. I love form and I love different kinds of line. But for whatever reason, but I've never done the Sestina or the Sonnet or the Villanelle thing. But I always feel make up your own form. You know, George Herbert basically made up a form every time he wrote a poem. And uh, I always feel getting the repetitions you want, make it Villanelle-ish or Sonnet-ish. But make up your own rules as you go along. I love that. I think, yes, that and that's... That's how you live your life, too, Robert. I hope so. Uh, I kind of feel so. You know, lose your books that you wrote. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the rhyme scheme of this poem, if you're into that kind of thing, is A, B, C, D, E. 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 My father used to say, (laughs) I must go back to some program. My father used to say, A, B, C, D, goldfish. (laughs) M-N-O, goldfish. (laughs) O-S-A-R. M-S. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe my dad also grew up in New Jersey, so maybe... Um, Did your dad also say ABCD goldfish? Oh, yeah. That's how I learned. <laughs> I wish I knew where that came Do you have any idea where it comes from? You sounded like you knew a little more of it than I did. Um, well, at least my dad would have it be sort of like... Um, I don't know, like who's on first. It felt like a longer thing, like who's on first. You know, that sort Let's of... find it. Like, yeah. In the age of Google, one of us is going to find it. Okay, and then who, who, maybe it can be a race. I challenge... <laughs> I'll ask my <laughs> no, mom, too. things go deep. I do. <laughs> I always pictured it for some silly reason, cross-stitched on some pillow when I was a kid, when my dad would say it, which makes no sense, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, that would probably be the last place you would find it. But I, I feel like it must have been some either anonymous vaudeville comic or a radio comic. And uh, probably in the heyday of ethnic comedy, where everything was, you know, Life with Luigi or the Goldbergs, uh, hark back to all the vaudeville comics who were German dialect or Irish dialect or whatever. And I suspect that ABCD Goldfish goes back to vaudeville. But since your dad and my dad both said it, 
And your dad is probably younger than my dad, who was born in 1917. No, my dad was 1919. He was much older. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to find that out. We will. Worth knowing. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Pinsky, I knew I liked you the moment I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> and just to tease you, because you you worked in like the Twitter form too. I was I I thought that was funny. What your your um, I guess was it last year that you published? Yeah. A, Somebody a, at the a Twitter New York poll? Times last year discovered that the anniversary of Twitter came on the uh, came during Poetry Month. So they asked some of us to write uh, poems using 140 characters or less. And uh, you'll excuse me for boasting. I sort of knocked out the guy at the Times by writing one in rhyme uh, in about uh, five minutes. Um, <laughs> let's see if I can say it. I decided it was when the it was when the Wisconsin uh, governor was trying to break the teachers' union, <gasps> and a whole thing about teachers. And my poem was it's three lines and they all rhyme. It was something like. The fifth, grade, the fifth grade teacher and her followers. Five sections, 40 in each. All hers, except the numbers came to four. The fifth grade teacher and her followers. Five sections, eight sections, five in each. Eight, whatever it was, all hers. Um, 140 different characters. That's... <laughs> uh, so... So that was my my poem. I think it's well under the 100, 140 limit. Uh, I saw a lot of great epigrams. Uh, I I do a little. So I don't tweet a lot, but I do a little, and I have put uh, 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 things like uh, 19th and 17th century uh, epigrams onto Twitter. Ooh, can you can you give us one? Sure. This is one I actually recited along with a couple of other poems at the. Um, the dedication of the Flight 93 Shanksville Memorial. Oh. Uh, I thought that before talking about memory, I would read something and say something about forgetting. And you know, the River Lethe, Lethe, of course, is the mythological river of forgetfulness. And Lander wrote this, uh, I think, killer two-line poem on love, on grief, on every human thing. Time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. Um, it seems to me just a tremendous poem on love, on grief, on every human thing. Time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. And the sprinkling, that it's not engulfing, uh, makes it somehow more heartbreaking to me. It's just, just a good example of what you can do in a small space and how the sound can help you. Yes. Um, and which it actually reminds me of what you're doing on uh, sort of a, 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 an enormous space uh, as the editor of poetry on slate.com. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I love the, what you've been doing it for some years now, but um, put it like kind of revisiting a classic poem and, and then putting it up there and, and then letting, saying there's the fray where you talk with people about it online. Uh, it's actually sort of a necessity. I mean, Slate publishes a poem every week. For years, we were doing a new poem. And uh, as everything else in all forms of publishing, money became an issue. 
and uh, could they still afford to pay the poets for these poems? Maybe, Robert, maybe you should write a column instead. I didn't want to do that. Uh, so it's partly a money-saving move. Once a month, so I hope it's more than that, once a month uh, we, we publish a poem that's in public domain. And I have done Lander, I've done Ben Johnson, I've done uh, Marianne Moore. Um, William Cowper, that, I liked that. Yes, Cowper. <laughs> um, and uh, I read the poem. Uh, the other weeks, the, poet, the living poets read their own poems. I read it. Yeah, and then I have a discussion with whoever, you know, undergraduates, cranks, smart people. And it's, I like the forum. Sometimes quite famous poets chime in and uh, professors of literature, but along with beginners and amateurs. And uh, I think it's often a wonderful cogent discussion. I think, I think and um, it's just another another one of the nutty things I do, Dee. So many, so many, <laughs> and, and important, um, because now this feels like it could be another book, like a way of looking at that discussion where it is, it's of the public realm, um, and people say different things when they're speaking, when their words are the only things that um, yeah. are there. I haven't looked into that. Uh, idea for if it were a book, I would want all the discussion to be there. I'd certainly want to have those voices, and I don't know if you'd need permission from. Uh, it, it's worth looking into because it would be kind of a terrific anthology. I mean, the favorite poem anthologies, like Americans' favorite poems. Each poem is accompanied by um, quotations from letters that people wrote to the project. Um, here, it would be a conversation. Uh, amongst readers, certainly in both cases, it disproves the idea that nobody reads poetry or Americans don't read poetry or all of that. Yes. <laughs> and Robert, you are such a big part of that, I think, in making it known to people that that is the truth of the matter. And could we, could we please have another conversation, like a part two at some point? Of course. I think I've demonstrated that I am willing to yak. <laughs> Indeed, prone to yak. You are just plain lovely. Um, well, I'm going to wrap up the show now, but Robert, stay on the line for a moment. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. On the program today, Robert.